You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church are seen the other way around that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. If you've listened to a number of these shows, you know that one of my favorite things to do is to have a Jewish, enthusiastic Jewish convert or enthusiastic Jewish entrant into the Catholic Church on the show to talk about their journey and how the Lord revealed himself as Jesus to them and brought them into the Catholic Church. And uh, with um, God willing, next week I will have such a... Uh, fellow Jewish convert on the show to give his witness testimony, but I don't for this week. So what I was going to do this week was read the uh, witness testimonies, the stories of uh, several, uh, actually in this case, quite prominent Jewish entrants into the Catholic Church, Jewish converts, and uh, use their witness testimonies to to illustrate the uh, tr- transition, the, the integral um, link between Judaism and the Catholic Church and the way that the Catholic Church is simply the fulfillment of Judaism, the continuation of Judaism after the coming of the Jewish Messiah, who, of course, was Jesus Christ. So the first Jewish Catholic convert that I would like to give the witness testimony of is Jean-Marie Cardinal Lestiger. Uh He passed away in 2007, but before dying, he was the Archbishop Cardinal of Paris, France, and he himself was a Jewish convert. He was one of the most, uh, probably the highest ecclesiastical uh, Jewish convert of our times. And uh, he had a very beautiful perspective on the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic Church, not surprisingly, uh, which he wrote about and um and uh, he wrote both theologically about it and also autobiographically about it. So I will begin with what actually was his obituary, was an account of his life that was written in The Economist magazine uh, upon his death um, shortly after he died. So I will begin with that, and then I'll read some extracts from a book that he wrote on the relationship between Judaism and Catholicism, which was called, not surprisingly, the promise, the promise, since Judaism was essentially the promise of Christianity before it arrived. So beginning with his obituary from The Economist magazine, which appeared August 16th, 2007, about two weeks after he passed away. He passed away August 5th, 2007, at the age of 80. The funeral of Jean-Marie Lustiger at Notre Dame de Paris on August 10th at the funeral, his second cousin, Jonas Moses Lustiger, read a psalm in Hebrew and placed on the coffin a jar of earth that had been gathered on the Mount of Olives. Then another cousin, Arnaud Lustiger, bent over the coffin to recite Kaddish, the Jewish prayers for the dead. Only when those things were over was the body of Cardinal Lustiger carried inside the cathedral where the Catholic ceremony took over. There was no question of mixing the rites. The cardinal said his staff would not have liked that, yet they were mixed within himself. He was a Jew by birth, instinct, emotion, and devotion. He was a Catholic by conversion and conviction. He cracked Jewish jokes and put on a suit and a kippah to go to synagogue, although the evening would find him in his sutan again. For him, Christianity was simply the fruit of Judaism. His first religion came to completion in his second. Christ in his eyes was the Messiah of Israel, his cross worthy of a yellow star. And since the mission of Israel was to bring light to the Goyim, preaching the gospel became his own mitzvah. The theology was complicated despite the jot-jod charm and aquiline intensity with which it was expressed. Many on both sides did not understand it. The Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel called Cardinal Lestiger a betrayer of his people. 
the Jerusalem Post denounced him as an apostate. On the Catholic side, arch-conservatives lamented that their archbishop was not truly of French origin. In one sense, this was correct. His father and mother were Polish-Jewish immigrants, keeping a hat and drapery shop in Montparnasse in Paris. The young Aaron had been protected from Christianity, kept inside during Christian festivals, and made aware that his grandfather had been a Yiddish-speaking rabbi in Silesia. But he had found a New Testament at his piano teacher's and discovered, as he read it, that he seemed to know this story already. The moment of conversion came at 14 in Orleans, where his family had taken sporadic shelter in a Catholic household during the war. On Holy Thursday, he stole into Orleans Cathedral to find it blazing with candles and flowers. The next day, Good Friday, he found the church stripped as a sign of desolation. Christ's presence, followed by Christ's absence, impressed him so deeply that he asked to be baptized. Explaining to his parents was, in his words, unbearably painful. Outraged, they called in a rabbi, but the rabbi simply seemed to think that their boy was either deluded or sensible. Fourteen years later, he was ordained a priest. So let me interject a little bit and make a couple of comments about this. Um, I, the, because the writer of this obituary thinks there's something hard to understand about this, but it seems to me that it was, there's nothing easier to understand if, in fact, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Of course, Lissager was a Jew by birth, instinct, emotion, and devotional nature. And of course, he was a Catholic by conversion and conviction. Be- entering the Catholic Church didn't make him, of course, any less of a Jew. And in fact, he liked to put on a suit and a kippah, that's the skull cap that Jews are supposed to wear when they pray, and go to synagogue to pray the Jewish prayers with other Jews, although the evening would find him in his sutan, which is a cassock again. Of course, he did not find any contradiction here. He did not find any incongruity here because he was uh, both a Jew and a Catholic. As he said, Christianity was simply the fruit of Judaism. His first religion, that is Judaism, came to completion in his second, that is the Catholic Church. And since the mission of Israel was to bring light to the Gentiles, as Cardinal Listiger evangelized and spread the Catholic faith, he was performing exactly that good deed, which was the mission of Israel, that is to bring light to the Gentiles. Uh, now, the uh, obituary goes on to say that the chief rabbi of Israel called Cardinal Listiger a betrayer of his people, and the Jerusalem Post denounced, of an, denounced him as an apostate. But again, nothing could be more natural because, I mean, the biggest problem that one has, I believe, that I have as a Jew, I'll just make it personal, when I talk to other Jews about my conversion or my entry into the Catholic Church, is the confusion about, is this a, something about me? Is the topic, is the issue me or is the issue Jesus? Because the issue is Jesus. Either Jesus was the Jewish Messiah or he wasn't the Jewish Messiah. If he wasn't the Jewish Messiah, then of course for a Jew to become a Catholic is to become an apostate, is to apostatize. It's to turn away from the religion of Judaism into a false religion, and even worse than a false religion in some sense, because the worship of a human being as God makes it particularly offensive, so to speak, to Judaism. But if, in fact, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, then a Jew entering the Catholic Church isn't an apostasy at all. It is They are just as faithful a Jew as they ever were when they entered the Catholic Church, because, as I said, the issue is who was Jesus. And if he was the Jewish Messiah, it's hardly logical that a Jew should stop being Jewish by becoming a follower of the Jewish Messiah. That doesn't make any sense at all, of course. He would become more Jewish as a follower of the Jewish Messiah than he had been before as a rejecter of the Jewish Messiah. So nothing could be more logical that the chief rabbi of Israel and the Jerusalem Post denounced him as an apostate because since they were convinced that Jesus was not the Jewish Messiah, if that had been true, if their position had been the correct position, then of course Le Sujet would have been 
uh, in apostate. And in fact, the, this obituary is being a little bit polite because I've read the statement of the chief rabbi of Israel and it was actually very, um, vitriolic. And he accused Cardinal Lissager of trying to destroy the Jewish people. Um, because basically the view being that when, if a, if a Jew becomes a Christian, um, that is a loss to Judaism and of course an apostasy and a betrayal of the Jewish people. But if enough Jews became Christian, then the Jewish nation itself would be destroyed. The Jewish people itself would cease to exist. So there is a second huge threat that chauvinistic Jews, if I can use that term, feel when Jews become Christian, which isn't just their personal apostasy, but the danger that should the trend continue, it would mean the dissolution of an identifiable uh, Jewish people. Now, that is, by the way, a, a whole other topic, because that raises the question, which we will see in Lustiger's theological writings in a few minutes, that raises the question of whether there should still be some identifiable Jewish identity among Jews in the church, precisely so that their conversion does not amount to a disappearance, so to speak, of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish people. So, uh, continuing, though, with the obituary, with the brief biography of uh, Cardinal Lestiger, the future Cardinal was convinced, even then, that he had not abandoned one iota of his Jewishness. To say that he had, he once explained, is like denying my father and mother, my grandfathers and grandmothers. In fact, he kept his first name Aaron as his first name at baptism, only adding Christian ones. At the same time, those who thought this a conversion of convenience to save his hide were wrong. He had not wanted to save his hide. Like most survivors, he constantly mourned the members of his family who had died in the camps, especially his mother, who was transported to Auschwitz in 1942. He would say Kaddish for her on her death day. Again, Kaddish is the Jewish memorial prayers for the dead. And on his first visit to Auschwitz in 1983, he slipped away to kneel in the grass among the barracks in his archiepiscopal robes with his scarlet skull cap and cry. Uh, let me just uh, back up and, and make another couple of comments. First of all, the uh, cardinal was convinced, of course, that he had not abandoned one bit of his Jewishness. That goes back to what I had been saying just a moment ago, that if Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, again, see, the thing is one has to focus on who is Jesus, not on the individual convert. And if Jew Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, then, of course, he had not become any less Jewish or abandoned one speck of his Jewishness by becoming a follower of the Jewish Messiah. Another thing that was very beautiful in this uh, conversion account is that the uh, seminal moment of his conversion was when he went into the cathedral when when Jesus was in the tabernacle, when the Blessed Sacrament was in the tabernacle, and he felt Christ's presence. And then the next day, which was Good Friday, the Blessed Sacrament had been removed from the tabernacle, and he felt the emptiness, he felt the desolation, he felt the absence of Christ, which shows that he had a supernatural, I would say, a, a sensibility, a, a, a physical-like perception of the presence of Christ in the tabernacle and the absence of Christ when the Blessed Sacrament was removed, which is uh, very, very beautiful to, to see. Going on with his obituary biography, um, possibly because the wound of losing his mother in Auschwitz had never healed, and possibly because melancholy kept dogging him, Lustiger pursued his career as a priest with a wild, frenetic energy. As a chaplain in the Paris universities, a post he held from 1954 to 1969, he was remembered in sharp black corduroys and black loafers tearing around the Latin quarter of Paris on a motorbike. As Archbishop of Paris in 1984, he led a demonstration of a million people to protest against the government's attempt to secularize Catholic schools. 
He set up Radio Notre Dame and a Catholic TV station. In his 70s, he organized joyous World Youth Days in Paris and in Rome. Fervent for evangelization, he gingered up all his 106 parishes in Paris, summarily shifted clergy who failed to perform, and founded his own seminary, which eventually provided about 15% of the city's priests. Though a new broom and a gale of fresh air, unafraid to shout if a crucifix fell over, he was intellectually conservative. Most of the world's wrongs, including fascism, communism, and anti-Semitism, he traced to the Enlightenment and the cult of reason. Relativism and the collapse of moral values, he blamed on the student riots of 1968, in which he had refused to take the student's side. All his instincts and emotions, as well as, as his Polish background, endeared him to John Paul II, and it was under the mantle of that friendship that he first rose to Bishop of Orleans and then Archbishop and finally to Cardinal, all within five years. But he never forgot his Jewish roots. He taught himself Hebrew in readiness for his Aliyah, or formal return to Israel, and every detail of his funeral, with its two rites, the Jewish rite and the Catholic rite, he carefully arranged himself. Then he wrote his epitaph, quote, I was born Jewish, I received the name of my paternal grandfather, Aaron. Having become Christian by faith and baptism, I have remained Jewish, as did the apostles. Close quote, end of his epitaph. All I can do is repeat what he said. Uh, he asserted that he was born Jewish, and having become Christian by faith and baptism, he remained Jewish, as in fact the apostles had remained Jewish. So he is a very beautiful example in our day of a fervent Jew, one could say, who became a fervent Catholic without ever becoming any less a fervent Jew which in some sense is what this show is all about. Now, let me go on to read some of his theological reflections on the meaningfulness of Judaism in this period between the first and second coming of Christ. Uh, before I read that set of passages, so let me just repeat that this is a live call-in show, and if anyone wishes to call here, the number is 866 6279 or 866-333-MARY-M-A-R-Y. You're listening to Roy Shoman. The show is Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Now continuing to read from Cardinal Jean-Marie Lestiger's book, The Promise, which, as I mentioned at the outset of the show, is, is a set of theological reflections on the promise of Judaism. That is, of course, the promise of the Catholic Church that is held within Judaism, Judaism being the promise and the Catholic Church being the fulfillment of that promise. So turning to the words of Jewish Catholic Cardinal Jean-Marie Lustiger, the Church appears in Jerusalem after Pentecost as an, as an assembly, which the word for which is kahal in Hebrew, ecclesia in Greek. It is unthinkable that she would claim to replace Israel. She is not another Israel, but the very fulfillment in Israel of God's plan. The church is then faced with the question of the extent to which the pagans who share in Israel's election should be obliged to observe the laws which are Israel's trust, responsibility, and privilege. To what extent should these pagans be associated with the totality of Israel's mission? This is the major problem facing the first generations of Christians, as all the New Testament writings testify. In this early church, the status of the pagan Christian assemblies began to be established. They are not dispensed from observing the law. If the pagans did not observe the law, they would have no share in either Israel's election or grace. But the gift of the Holy Spirit, a grace of the Messiah, enables pagans to observe the law differently from Israel, which remains charged with this delightful burden of observance. The Church of Jerusalem is, in the Catholic Church, the permanence of the promise made to Israel, the presence of the fulfillment of that promise, an attestation of the grace bestowed on the pagans. 
Thus, the church is that of both Jews and pagans. The fact that this church of Jerusalem was to survive only until the 6th century is one of history's great mysteries and may well be a great spiritual tragedy whose final outcome remains hidden. For this matter, the separation of the church into eastern and western branches cannot be considered settled. These mysteries are a part of the wounds, the sins that we must acknowledge. Let me um, back up and make a couple of comments. I'm not, frankly, entirely sure exactly what Cardinal Lusage means here. It's clear that he certainly is asserting the um, continued identity of or existence of Jewish identity within the church. He is celebrating the fact that for the first few centuries of the Catholic Church, there was a visible Jewish presence in the church, a church of Jerusalem, a, a visibly Jewish church. He's mourning the fact that there is no longer a visible Jewish presence in the church. Um, if he isn't suggesting, I'm not sure that he's suggesting, I hope he's not suggesting, that there is any reason for the church of Jerusalem, so to speak, the Jewish presence in the church, to observe the Jewish laws, which were abrogated for the uh, pagan Christians, which were uh, nullified by the um, introduction of Christianity and the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Um, uh, frankly, I don't believe that's what he's saying, although it seems a little bit um, unclear to me. Uh, I, 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 if he is saying that, I certainly would distance myself from that. I know that that is a, a confusion, and it's a reasonable confusion. It certainly was a very reasonable confusion in the early church, because as Cardinal Lister points out, in the early church they had it wrong in the very first decade of the church. You see this in the book of Acts. The Council of Jerusalem had to be called just about 15, 17 years after the crucifixion. All of the apostles had to be recalled to Jerusalem for the first ecumenical council to determine the thorny issue is the Jewish law to be required of Gentiles who entered the church? In other words, has the Jewish law been dissolved for Gentiles who entered the Catholic Church, the Christian Church, or do they also have to follow the Jewish law, which would have meant both the uh, laws of what they're allowed to eat, of, of kashrut, of, of kosher food, and um, more onerously, the requirement of circumcision. But the mere fact that it took 20 years for the early church to determine, not without controversy. Uh, uh, Peter originally, if I don't have the story wrong, Peter originally argued that the um, Gentiles did have to be circumcised. Um, but it was resolved at that first church council, the Council of Jerusalem, that that was not the case. So one can see that it was a it was an early confusion in the church. In in my own experience, uh, helping Jews who enter the Catholic Church, I see it still present as a confusion. I know that many Jews in the Catholic Church, when they become Catholic, do not feel comfortable abandoning um, the Jewish law entirely, and uh, many of the ones that I know still uh, keep kosher, uh, don't eat non-kosher foods, and still observe the Sabbath to some extent. And it just reminds me of the words of St. Paul that um, if you feast, feast for the glory of God. If you fast, for the fast for the glory of God. Um, and I would extend that a little bit and say, well, if you observe the Sabbath on Saturday, uh, do so for the glory of Jesus. Do that, do that united to the fact that Jesus was a Jew and therefore you're kind of indirectly honoring him by doing that. If you do not observe the Jewish Sabbath. If you don't observe Saturday as the Sabbath, do it for the glory of Jesus because you're celebrating the Sabbath on the day of his resurrection instead. In other words, the fact of uh, following a particular religious observance is less important than the spirit in which it's done, the motivation for doing it. Um, anyway, going back to Cardinal Listerger. The commandment to love as Jesus loves is not to be substituted for the other commandments. That would make no sense. There's only one holy law. The law is the revelation of God's commandments. The newness is in God's act in that he sends Israel his obedient son. Jesus obviously spent much time meditating on the commandments. 
Everything Psalm 119 has to say about the delights of the law was certainly an essential part of his prayer. The commandments were constantly being meditated by Jesus as word of life. Why do these commandments have such importance? How can we increase our understanding of them? The words from Leviticus, You shall be holy, for I am holy, are echoed in the Sermon on the Mount. It makes no sense to understand the Sermon on the Mount as the substitution of one commandment for another. It is essential to understand what is meant by the expression, a new law. If the novelty meant is that the Holy Spirit enters the heart of the one who participates in Christ's life, the law of the Spirit, as St. Paul expresses it, then yes, the expression, new law, is appropriate. However, to maintain that the revelation has been substituted for another is to understand absolutely nothing of the mystery of Christ. It is to deny the gift of God. Why have these commandments been given to us? The law enables us to act as God acts. And in Jesus' meditation, the law reveals how God acts. Just as much as the law is a precept given to man, it is also revelation of God's action and his mystery. How can it be suggested that by observing the Ten Commandments, we act as God does unless the commandments reveal to us how God acts? We have to enter into Jesus' prayer. The gospel makes this possible to understand what the commandments tell us about the way God acts how they allow us to participate in God's own action. Undoubtedly, there are several ways of observing certain precepts and practices in religious life. That of the Church of Jerusalem, as described in the Acts of the Apostles in the first days of Christianity, a community composed of observant Jews. An example of this way today is monastic life whereas the pagan Christian communities do not have the same obligations, all, however, being ordered by love, which is the greatest good of the church. This diversity is given for the edification of all, but there is only one way to observe the will of God, and that is to obey the commandments. Pagans also have a right to the law as a holy law inscribed in their hearts. It is by acting through the Messiah with him and in him in him who made himself obedient to the law, to death on the cross, that they obey the law. The the discipline of the church dispenses them from Israel's observances, a burden too heavy for them and which remains Israel's privilege. It is not for the pagans to take on the physical history of the Hebrews, since they through Christ have become spiritual offspring of Abraham, but not his physical descendants. Nevertheless, in Christ they have access to the plenitude of the law, and receive the Holy Spirit, which allows them to fulfill it. Uh, this ends the passages from Cardinal Lissage's The Promise that I was uh, planning to read in conjunction with having given a little bit of his life story through his obituary. I do want to comment a little bit on this last paragraph. Um, I'm not sure that it is a point of view that I entirely subscribe to, but I think it is a very beautiful uh, speculation, spiritual speculation, which um, Cardinal Lissage seems to be suggesting that the um, part of the mystery of the abrogation of the Jewish laws um, is based on the following, which is that um, non-Jews, when they entered the church, Gentiles entering the Catholic Church, entered through Jesus. And Jesus, who was totally obedient to the law, up to death on the cross, perfectly fulfilled the law. And therefore, when Gentiles enter the church through Jesus, they are in some sense taking upon themselves the obedience to the law that Jesus demonstrated. In other words, they are they are are being credited, so to speak, with Jesus' obedience to the law, and therefore they don't have to obey the law themselves. Um, It's certainly a a very beautiful and interesting uh, point of view uh, without me personally being in a position to comment on its um, theological purity or or orthodoxy, if, if you permit me to say that. Um, but just just repeating the final words of Cardinal Lissage in this passage, in Christ they have access to the fullness of the law and receive the Holy Spirit, 
which allows them to fulfill it. So that ends my um, discussion, so to speak, my recounting of the story of Cardinal Listerger and some of his theological observations on the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the church. Very often on this show, we take a short break about halfway through, which is about where we are now, a short musical break. And uh, I will go to that in a, in a few seconds. And when I come back, I will continue reading the account of some other notable Jewish entrance into the Catholic Church. Uh, just before going to the break, let me say that this is a live call-in show. So if anyone wishes to call in, the number is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And if you call in during the break, I'll be in a position to go immediately to calls coming out of the break uh, before going on to the stories of the other Jewish converts. So with that, let's take that break and be back in a few moments. listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. When I return to our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman. Welcome back to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church and the sacraments. 
Um, I have been spending today reading the accounts of some notable Jewish entrants into the Catholic Church, and I will continue doing so, some other very notable Jewish Catholic entrants into the Church. And I'm going to talk about the Loeb family, um, which is extraordinary for several reasons. One, you will see in this account that they were a family of Jewish converts that ended up with... Um, three sons becoming monks and three daughters becoming religious nuns. Um, and they died in, um, they, they, most of them died in Auschwitz. Um, I think all six of them died in Auschwitz, in fact. Uh, but there's something interesting about the story before I go into it, which is it turns out that they died in Auschwitz at the same time and in the same way and for the same reason that St. Dieter Stein died in Auschwitz. In other words, they were Catholic religious of Jewish blood in Holland when the uh, Catholic priests in Holland issued in, in a Sunday sermon a condemnation of the Nazi persecution of the Jews and the... Uh, uh, Nazi commander for Holland immediately retaliated by ordering the immediate deportation of all Catholic religious in Holland who had Jewish blood to the extermination camps. And so it was in, in this act of retribution against the Catholic Church for this sermon that the priests had just preached that both Edith Stein, who was in a Carmelite convent in Holland, was um, deported to Auschwitz. And the Loeb family was deported to Auschwitz. So in their death, they were united with Ederstein, and they actually were shipped to Auschwitz in the same cattle car as Ederstein, and presumably were um, were gassed uh, in the same gassing of the gas chamber in, in Birkenau with Ederstein. Uh, it's also, by the way, uh, the, the, that story of the retaliation of the Nazis against the Jewish Catholic religious converts in Holland is often used as uh, evidence of one reason why Pope Pius XII did not uh, more vocally, more loudly denounce the Nazi persecution of the Jews was because he had in his mind, in front of his eyes, the precedent, the example of what happened when the priests in Holland did that, rather than helping the situation of the Jews, they exacerbated it because of the violence of the um, of the Nazis' retaliation. And so Pope Pius XII, not unreasonably, was aware of the very distinct danger that should he speak out more vocally about the persecution of the Jews, he might just worsen the situation for them as well as for the Catholic Church. Anyway, going to the account of the Loeb family. In the tidy cemetery of the Cistercian Abbey of Konigshoven, near Tilburg, in the central area reserved for abbots, there stands, reverently surrounded by Dutch flowers, an unusual granite cross. It says, In memory of our brothers, Father Ignatius, Father Nivard, Brother Linus of the Loeb family, who in the year 1942 in Auschwitz died for the name of Christ. The visitor asks why only these particular monks were singled out for death, especially since Loeb is a German name rather than a Dutch one. Here unfolds a story in which every element is precious. These three brothers were the sons of an unusually talented and devout pair of Jewish convert parents, Lutz and Jenny Loeb had the distinction, unparalleled in modern times, of having at one and the same time three sons in one Cistercian Abbey and three daughters in a single Cistercian convent. Then all six of these specially dedicated Christian men and women were seized by the Nazi government simply for being of Semitic extraction. They showed heroic faithfulness in their sufferings and free from all bitterness, ultimately died for their faith. It is worth taking a closer look at them. Ludwig Loeb, the father of our remarkable family, was born in the Rhineland in 1881 of liberal Jewish parents. He grew up uh, to be a reflective, sensitive, and noble young man. After an interest in Marxism, he turned to reading Cardinal Mercier and others, 
and became interested in Catholicism. He became engaged to a young Jewish woman, Jenny van Gilder, daughter of a prosperous Amsterdam exporter. They say she, by contrast, was a peppy, talented, and extroverted girl. They were baptized a few days before their marriage in 1906. Ludwig had varying success as a mining engineer and teacher. The family moved from Holland to Indonesia and finally returned and settled in Bergen-op-Zoom. Meanwhile, between 1908 and 1918, eight children were born. In Bergen-op-Zoom, they were strongly, they were in a strongly Catholic region. Here they were not rich, but the personalities of the family flowered in a very healthy way. Jenny was the most popular hostess in town. At the Loeb's, there's always a party going on. Lutz was a gentle, beloved teacher and youth leader. He was given to quiet reflection, studied St. Bernard, translated French books, including Thibault's Life of Dom Marmion, and made yearly eight-day retreats at Konigshoven Abbey, not far away, and was known to all as a real saint. So it was that when the oldest son, George, finished high school and wanted to become a priest, he, after some difficulty and hesitancy, entered the choir novitiate at the nearby Trappist Monastery in 1926. Thus the procession began. After George, there followed his younger brothers, Robert as a lay brother, and Ernst as a choir monk. Meanwhile, the oldest girl, Lena, felt the same attraction and wanted to enter the Trappistines. The closest convent was French-speaking, Chimay in southern Belgium. Here she came as the first Dutch girl to enter that house. I am offering myself for the return of the Jews, she said. She, too, was then followed by two sisters, Dor and Wies. In 1937, they all went to the new foundation at Berkel in the Netherlands, not far from Konigshoven. So here there were two fathers, a brother, and three sisters from the same family, and each was a real personality in his or own, her own right. George, Father Ignatius, was extroverted, hearty, and helpful. He and Rob had their troubles sometimes in the chapter of faults, but submitted well. Rob, Brother Linus, was handsome, active, and full of a happy camaraderie. He even constructed a forbidden handmade radio with a tin roof as antenna and secretly listened to Hitler's speeches. Ernst, Father Novartis, was an earnest monk to the core. A, a self-controlled submaster of novices, he was strict with himself but kind to others. His nervous tension often caused sleepless nights, but he came to night vigils manfully and struggled against sleep by means of many satisfactions. Lean, Mother Hedvigus, was a lovely, mature, and motherly girl. She, she held various offices in the community and was known as an exemplary religious, open-hearted and spontaneous, but controlled. Dor and Wies, Mother Teresia and Mother Veronica, were generous in sacrifice and had a tender love for the Blessed Virgin. However, they were not as physically strong as Lean. There remained at home only the two youngest children, Hans and Paula. The Third Reich rose. War came. Nazi panzers rumbled into the Netherlands. The Dutch bishops, in an outspoken pastoral, protested the cruelties done to the Jewish people. Rather than hit the hierarchy directly, Commissar General Schmidt chose to silence them by an act publicly announced as a reprisal. A week later, all Jews of Catholic faith in Holland were rounded up. This is why their subsequent death could rightly be called martyrdom suffered in hatred of the faith and of the teaching authority of the church. On Sunday morning, August 2, 1942, while the nuns at Berkel were singing the familiar night office, the police came and demanded that Mother Hedvigus and Mother Teresia be turned over. They left choir, received Holy Communion from their chaplain, and smilingly said goodbye to all who were near. Aren't you going to run? No. I have simply said to our Lord, I give myself to you. Do with me what you will. Mother Veronica lay seriously ill with tuberculosis and was not taken. When they arrived at Königshoven in the police car, the SS guards had the brothers taken from the night office, but they actually allowed Father Navard and Father Ignatius to say Mass. Father Navard was remarkable in the way he offered Mass 
with his customary calm and deliberate gravity. Asked if he didn't want to try to escape, Father Ignatius said, But what effect would that have on the monastery? They've threatened to shoot ten fathers if we don't come. To another brother, he said, Till we meet again in heaven. Brother Linus's first reaction was to run, but he resigned himself and served Father Ignatius's Mass. When the brothers got out to the car and saw the sisters they hadn't seen in 12 to 14 years, the reunion was hearty and joyful. An astonished SS guard said, You'd think you were being taken to a party. That's right, said Mother Hedvigus. You're just going to help us to get to heaven faster. That day, no less than 300 Catholic Jews were rounded up in the Netherlands and sent to Amersfoort Collecting Center, then to the infamous Westerbork camp on the German border. Mention is made at that time the Nazis still hoped America would furnish refuge for their victims, and detailed questions were asked and records made of friends and relatives in America. The U.S. government did not agree to accept them, however. The Loeb's were in brilliant company with medical doctors, intellectuals, learned Dominican fathers and sisters, and the great Carmelite Sister Benedicta of the Cross, Edith Stein. Because of the great strength of her character, the latter was a natural leader in the group of religious who prayed the office and the rosary in common in the transit camp. Witnesses say the two priests of the Loeb family were active, consoling and hearing confessions, and the nuns were courageous and helpful, especially to the children. This is about all we know. The group was moved to the terrible Auschwitz camp in Poland, where a Nazi document tersely records their dates of birth and date of death, October 1942. One unconfirmed report from an anonymous letter says that because of their hearing confessions, Father Ignatius and Nevardis were killed by a firing squad with two Polish and two Greek priests, and that Father Novartis, the former submaster, exclaimed before the guns were fired for the novitiate of Konigshoven. Sister Veronica, who had been sick, was finally taken by the Nazis to Westerbork, but released after only eight or ten days, then sent to various hospitals by her superiors, and finally died at her own convent in August 1944. The youngest brother, Hans, was captured and did forced labor in a zinc mine in Poland. When the communists advanced, he was put on a western-bound open transport truck, froze his feet, and died in the infirmary barracks at Auschwitz in February 1945. The youngest Loeb child, Paula, married a Dutch man, remained hidden in the home of a courageous Catholic in Nürmingen during the war, and is the only living member of the family. End of the story of this uh, courageous and heroic and pious Jewish Catholic Dutch family of um, eight children, three boys who became Trappist monks, three girls who became Trappistine nuns, and um, out, out of the eight children, uh, seven seven perished, died um, at the hands of the Nazis in retaliation for the Dutch bishops uh, reading uh, homily at Sunday Mass condemning the Nazi persecution of the Jews. And throughout the story, there's so many, so many uh, gestures of heroism from different members of this family. The nun who said, I am offering myself for the return of the Jews, which, of course, echoes the words of Edith Stein, who, when she was taken away from her convent, said to her sister, Come, let us go for our people. And the, the reunion of the uh, uh, six religious from the same family in the SS car being taken to their death and the SS guard saying, you'd think you were being taken to a party. And one of the nuns saying, that's right, you're just going to help us to get to heaven faster. So there isn't much more one could ask for from a Catholic religious and uh, I will add that another one of the nuns, uh, when she was being arrested by the SS, was asked, aren't you going to run? And her reply was, no, I have simply said to our Lord, I give myself to you. Do with me what you will. So although they're not canonized saints, they certainly exhibit the characteristics of saints. 
And so thank you for listening. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to read the stories of some more Jewish Catholic heroes, so to speak, of various forms in the church. And I hope it's been uh, a little bit entertaining and edifying. And uh, if you listen next week, I will have a... Um, uh, a Jewish man that I recently met who's also in the Catholic Church give his witness testimony, which is very moving uh, and very edifying. He was, in fact, an atheist agnostic Jew who received the supernatural gift of faith. I'm sure that will be very enjoyable for all of us to listen to. And until then, this is Roy Showman saying goodbye for now. You've been listening to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, on Radio Maria, celebrating everything that has to do with the connection between Judaism and Catholicism, between Judaism and the transformed form of Judaism that it was transformed into by the birth, life, passion, and death of the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. So with that, I'll say goodbye for now and hope you join us again next week on Radio Maria. Bye.